0: He's a therapist. He's a performance coach. He's here to help. Open, understanding, engaging. You're listening to At Your Best with Yona Bud.
1: Hey, it's Yona Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now, on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best. So I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. On this episode, we show how traits we've developed thousands of years ago still dictate how we live today and how to keep your cool with all the news about wildfires blazing out of control in this country. We also speak with an expert on Cardinal officials winning a social justice award and why he's such a positive influence in many Toronto communities. And we also speak to a founder of an advocacy group as to why she believes all the conversations surrounding safe drug supply has become way too politicized. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help make you be at your best. Most people feel better belonging to something, right? So it's called tribalism, actually. And it's been a part of human societies for thousands and thousands of years. It's an influence. Uh, it's influence, I should say, can easily be seen in the way we live. Tribalism is strong loyalty to a particular group or you have a tendency to be, you know, to favor a member or members of a particular group. Um, and tribalism has positive effects. It can promote strong bonds between members of the same group, but it also can lead to negative outcomes, including conflict and Discrimination, prejudice, you know, cliquey people, right? They're part of a group, but there's cliquey people on one side or the other. So the positive aspects of tribalism include the development of strong. Uh, social relationships between members of the same group. So, for example, you know, we talk to people that are in recovery all the time um, in one form or another, and we talk about, you know, how do you make friends with a new group of people that in this particular case, as an example, uh, are sober or are no longer doing drugs or are no longer, you know, uh, gambling or whatever, right? Joining, joining up with you know, like-minded thinkers, So there's a benefit to us living in a society where we have a choice to organize our behavior and our social time with like-minded thinkers. But it also has negative consequences, right? So one of the main problems associated with it is that it can lead to conflict between different groups. So the more segmented you become, the more impactful your opinion is, right? So if you're if you're representing a you know you're representing the A group and you have a belief in one thing, and your friends are representing the B group and they have a belief in something else, the likelihood is that you and your friend at some point, um, because of the groups you belong to, the tribes you are a part of, um, may take a different stand, and that can lead to argument, disagreement, and so on. And we see a ton of that, by the way. We see a ton of that in the way organized religion uh, leads to uh, the horrible wars and such that we see in the world. So it, tribalism can have both positive and negative effects. But, it, you know, in order to, hand, to, to, to handle it properly, you need to understand what you're signing up for. That's a big part of it, right? What am I signing up for? So if you're joining a club that enjoys, you know, looking at flowers and walking through nature, and it's part of an organization that, you know, gives back to the community or whatever, and, these, and, and you like this kind of, of philosophy, then chances are it's a good thing for you to be part of that group. But if you join a group and you decide that you want to join this group because it's the group to belong to, right? So kids have a hard time making these, this distinction in schools. They tend to want to hang out with the cool kids that everyone pays attention to versus the kids that aren't as cool and don't stand out as much. And, you know, as a result, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Lots of times it doesn't. Depends on the kid. If the kid is made of the same stuff, then it fits. If the kid isn't, then it really doesn't. Can you join an organization and change your thinking along the way? Absolutely. We see it in religious context all the time. You know, Buddhist people become Jewish people. Jewish people become Buddhist people. Christians become Muslims. Muslims become Christians, and and so on. In in all different faiths, people you know join other faiths looking for whatever they're looking for. So we know that we can change organizations. We can change the groups that we belong to um, based on our passion and our desire. That's really the kind of the idea. You want to be part of something where there's a passion and desire. So the human drive, that the tribal drive, um, is really a tendency to belong. um, For a lot of people, to belong to a group, or in some cases, belong to the groups that don't want to belong to a group, because they're out there too, right? There's an organization of people that don't want to be part of an organization, (laughs) in some fashion or another. In the United States, there's there's a political organization called Libertarians. And libertarians are an interesting group of people because they don't believe in organized, um, to, to the best of my knowledge, organized politics and you know um, policing and all that stuff. Yet you know they're pretty organized for an unorganized group of people or a disorganized group of people who don't want to be part of a, a, a of a of a an entity. Well, a lot of us do. A lot of us want to belong to this kind of stuff. It goes back, you know, 300,000 years ago, maybe even more, when modern humans were emerging, right? So that means, you know, is it a a human thing only? Uh, You know, probably not. If you look at the way animals are in nature, they also look to connect in in a tribal fashion, in packs, right? Animals travel in packs, a lot of them do, In, in, in flocks, right? various names for how animals travel in a group. It's, you know, it, it's very uncomfortable for most people, and I guess maybe for most animals, to be on the outside looking in, to be outside of the the world that is going on around you. People want to belong to something. And you know what? You can even try channel your tribal instincts even a little more pain, a little more playful if you're trying to dip your feet in the water a little bit. If you're not so you know, tribal, you don't feel like you want to belong and, and, you know, just try becoming a member of, of some organization that, you know, you you like what they stand for. So, you know, uh, looking after um, animals, you know, animals that are, that are, that need to be fostered or, you know, joining an organization that's all about a particular sports team that you support, you know, someone who is a fan of a particular sports team is absolutely, is absolutely exercising their tribal their tribal desires and their need to be part of something. Well, this metal, this thing sort of works, right? It works as well when you're coming up with some secret sauce to grow your business, to produce the best website, for example, possible. So you want to understand what this, what, what the how to create a tribal mentality around your business. People want to belong. So creating content is what they call it, right? Creating content. So that you're able to engage with people that are interested in your message, and for that to become somewhat viral is another term, meaning that spreads out amongst all kinds of people. They're getting the word spread out. It's like imagine if you know in the old days someone rode up and down the street yelling and screaming the name of your business. Hopefully, that would be in the old days. It would create to you know create a, a, a you know a, a large number of people coming to be a part of whatever it is got going on. So mentality is very important in the human tendency to seek and connect with like-minded thinkers. It's very important. Um, And and groups of people who are connected to one another, to a leader, to an idea, um, you know, it's not necessarily, uh, it can be to a, it could be to a person. You know, you all believe in such and such a person. Um, And it's very important for a business owner because if you understand the tribal mentality around your brand and product, The chances of increased sales, especially word-of-mouth marketing and reviews and such, is much greater. And increased retention, your customers feel like they belong, so they're going to stick around. More engagement, better engagement. They leave comments and they discuss. That's where the whole idea of reviews, you know, that whole Google review thing or something review thing. Uh, re- reviews are part of a group, right? Part of a of a of a tribe, so to speak. Better content ideas and so on. It's it's good to be thinking in tribal in a tribal sense when you're looking at at, at marketing to audiences where you want them to come together and be a part of a movement, so to speak, right? Part of something that um, that makes a difference in the world and and perhaps you know even if it's just for a business, it's you know the purposes of of of, of capital gain. Uh, you really want people to be talking about what you do and how you do it, right? And um, and how great an opportunity it is to do it with you and how good an experience is and so on. You want people to share in the message. So that can be somewhat tribal as well. So I'll stick with us here when we come back from break, we're going to talk about Cardinal Official who uh, won an award here. And I want to talk about this guy because he really is someone at his best and uh, deserves to, the, to get a little bit of limelight here on, on the basis of that alone. Uh, so when we come back from break, we're going to talk to an expert uh, who deals in the music business and uh, talk a little bit about this award and what it means and his desire to help other children uh, and so on. might have five dollars to donate but guess what if there's ten thousand people that donate a little five dollars look at that sum of money some of us we work a lot many jobs and some of us we don't have the time we might only be able to donate a one hour but guess what if you donate an hour and I donate an hour and everybody in this room donates an hour already that is a lot of time a lot of different resources it's not just about monetary resources there's several different ways that you can contribute to the upliftment of people and welcome back thanks for being here with me you know a really cool guy his name is cardinal official uh he's a musician he's a uh, an advocate he's a social Guy, he's part of the whole social justice movement. He's involved in his community, just a really cool individual, very, very talented and very talented uh, uh, person. And he was presented with the first ever Social Justice Award, top selling Canadian hip hop to a local. He's like a local legend, not just because of his music and his talent. But his focus on kids, and you know, he understands that kids are heavily influenced by uh, people in his position, and his his career has definitely you know defined by a sense of purpose. Right? He he uses hip hop as a form of education, empowerment, and resistance, and uh, he um, focuses a very clear message how you can provide a good service for what people really need and for what they are and and what they need and and he's his whole thing about this the social award has everything to do with giving back and and he believes and and his whole experience uh, as he says is it's not about him uh, it's a it's a dream experience it it's, it's not about him it's about what he's able to do with it and i think that's what's um really keen uh, about what we're talking about tonight is somebody at their best. And we're we're profiling uh, Cardinal uh, at at his best because of his desire to help others uh, while in the midst of standing in the spotlight. Someone who understands this really well. His name is Eric Alper. He is my guest this evening. He's a publicist, music uh, commentator, and he says a shameless idealist. Um, Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me tonight.
2: Thanks for having me, and thanks for bringing the spotlight on somebody that is so worthwhile, like Cardi.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that's what he goes by. He goes by Cardi? He goes by Cardi to me.
2: Uh, He probably (laughs) goes by other really close friendship names to other people. But yeah, Cardinal or Cardi both work.
1: Amazing. So, um, how did he like? I know you're close. So, the idea is that people need to understand you're close with him. You're friends. You've did an interview with him. Um, you understand him. You understand how he thinks. You you hang out, I suppose, from the sounds of it, and, and kind of get him at at a at a casual social time when you get to see the guy really kind of who he is when he's not in the spotlight. Um, is he he everything that he looks like in terms of his desire to give back? I mean, it certainly seems like that, but up close and personal, is he what you see? He is exactly what you see. Ever since that he
2: started his hip-hop career in the mid-1990s here in Toronto as a member of the group called The Circle, they released a number of 12-inch singles, but the following year, he released his second album called Quest for Fire, Firestarter Volume 1, and that kind of led a lot of people to first hear the word T-Dot because he kind of popularized it. And from then on in, he was not just putting the spotlight on himself with his singles and his videos, and not only just the city of Toronto, but a lot of really great causes and organizations and initiatives that he was kind of lending his hand in. And a lot of it has to do with his mom. His mom gave him a real sense of belonging. He gave him a real sense of, of helpfulness. Um, his mom worked at City Hall. And so he learned really early on that not only the government can help you out when you need it, um, but it's people. And people make up corporations and people make up businesses. And all of that stuff um, kind of led him to where he is now, receiving the Social Justice Award, the first ever during Canadian Music Week last week.
1: Yeah, I think it's uh I think it's brilliant. Were you there when it, when he was when it was handed to him?
2: I was there. Um and it was such a great moment. I've known him for about 20 years and uh the ability for him to continue to do some really amazing work um is is just so great to see because he still continues to do that when he was on Canada's Got Talent um, yeah. that TV show. He was really he really acknowledged the fact that he was invited into everybody's home to watch the show together. So he knew that putting the spotlight on somebody who might have this opportunity to make their own successful career happen, he knew that a lot of kids would be watching him and so he didn't play the angry judge or the mean judge. That's not even where he was going. He just he cared about, you know, the performers and everybody else around him.
1: How 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 did he react?
2: I like think when, he was ha- very, when he was handed the award? Yeah, yeah I think he was very um, welcoming for the award because he knew that this gives him an opportunity to put the spotlight on other people. Um, right now, he is the global A&R sector for Deaf Champ Records, which is the biggest hip-hop label in the world. And it's yeah. not about having power for him in, in, of in itself. What it is, is it has the ability to use and sign these artists from Canada and send them out to the world or find, you know, hip-hop artists from the corners of the world and bring them to people who wouldn't otherwise have a chance to hear them. But it's his way of, of massaging their talent and talking to them and giving them uh, advice and, and hope so that they can actually achieve not just a successful music career, but also be a really good person and use that power for good, not evil.
1: Uh, what kind of dad is he?
2: Well, he's actually a pretty great dad. He's got three kids, and uh, I can only imagine how fun it is to have Cardi as your father. Not only do you get to go to a lot of shows and things like that, um, but I think that because he does so much in the community, it really gives him a sense of education and empowerment. Um, you know, I really first got to know him because my own daughter, Hannah, met him while they were both on the We Day tour for Free the Children. And the way that he was around, not just Hannah, but around all of the kids, I can only imagine that he's instilling those values that his mom gave him to his own kids.
1: Yeah, it's all about uh, modeling great behavior for your children, isn't it?
2: it? It's the only thing, you know, because after those gold albums are hung up on the wall, after those hits for everybody, dries up after the concert stops and the screaming stops you go home and you become a father and you become a dad and you become a husband and you become a family person and and uh, an uncle um, and so that comes with responsibility that comes with with partnerships and the ability for him um, to continue to not only work in the music industry and be just such a beacon and a shining light for not only myself but for everybody who works in the industry um he's just uh he's just one of these people that makes you want to do better in the world
1: amazing <clears throat> have you um have you had a bunch of did you ever like sort of just hang out with him casually like what, what does he like to do when he's when he's not busy with his kids or, or setting the world on fire <laughs> with music uh,
2: that's essentially what he does um, you know he's kind of like me like the work life balance doesn't exist because the work is blended into the life um, that that he's created for himself so a lot of it is based around music and the people that he surrounds himself with and it's a really good life that he's that he's worked really really hard in developing and building um, but it's also a life that that teaches the importance of art not just music but in film and video and television shows and all the different mediums um, that we consume on a daily basis all of that has a huge influence not only um, as you and i as adults but you know as kids and so he understands yeah. that power that he has
1: and he does very very well one respect and remember there's strength in numbers so more time as we continue to come together as a community, as a people, will continue to do this and make it 10 times bigger so that 10 years from now, the next youth that comes up and is able to receive this award is able to have 10 times more impact than I ever was. And that- okay, we're coming back here with uh, Eric Alper. He is a publicist, music commentator, shameless idealist, and a good friend of our guy that we're profiling tonight, Cardinal Fischel, for winning the Social Justice Award. Eric, thanks for being here with me tonight, uh, as I said earlier, and uh, appreciate all that you bring to the table. I kind of feel a little jealous a touch envious that I'm not Hanging out with you guys when all the cool stuff happens, but um, I know with a bunch of I know with a bunch of kids as you get a little bit older, it's, it's not as cool as you think, right? Is it? And it might have been when we were all in our twenties, maybe. But uh, the Def Jam gig is pretty cool, though, right? Yeah, the Def uh, Jam
2: job that he just recently announced that he got—he is now the global A and R, which stands for Artist in Repertoire, and Repertoire—and he is the person now responsible for signing new acts and molding them and working with them and giving them advice on everything from video to fashion to being a really good person, checking in with their mental health and their psyche to make sure that they're not only um, becoming great artists, but really good people as well. And he's been doing that for so long. You know, I first kind of got to know him a little bit when he arrived on the scene in the late 1990s. There was a song that was called Northern Touch. That won the Juno Award, and he collaborated with the Rascals and Shaw Claire and Checkmate and Thrust, and it really helped cement his status as not only somebody who um, was a kind of icon to be in Toronto, but that that song not only blew up and on, on Much Music, but it allowed almost the entire music industry to realize that rap and hip hop music was a real viable option of a of you know to kind of work with and play with. It sounds really silly to, you know, saying that in the in the fiftieth anniversary of, of, of rap music happening this year. But you know, there wasn't a lot of radio stations, at least on the commercial side, that played rap music and hip hop.
1: But yeah, yeah. the
2: whole success of, of that song Made people realize that after Maestro Fresh West first did in the '80s with "Let Your Backbone Slide," that this is a new breed of of artists that are kind of coming up that are building the foundation for artists like Drake and The Weeknd to just blow that house down. Without that song "Northern Touch," you don't have Drake. You don't have to, so so so.
1: So was there a time Eric, when you know things for this guy weren't for Cardinal weren't like all smooth and peanut butter like was there a point at which you know he had some adversity and and if so, obviously in the twenty years how how does a guy with this much talent this much presence in pizzazz? How does he deal with the down, the down stuff, the stuff that may you know, make most of us, you know, maybe uh, feel a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, upset or defeated? How does he overcome this in, in his daily life? Yeah, I, I think if you're a rapper, a
2: hip-hop artist, you're probably having a little bit of a easier time with performing and releasing your music. Um, you know, there's still not a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week station in this city, that plays that kind of music all the time. Anyway. Um, so when you, have, when you have platforms like YouTube and Spotify and other music streaming services, that these artists can go direct to the fan base. They bypass all those traditional gatekeepers like music directors and program directors and people that run the music. They're happy to play Justin Bieber, but they're not always thrilled to play 100% hip hop or rap music so the ability for that song first with Northern Touch and then his other hits they just they were just great songs that couldn't be denied but it was a struggle though you know you had to go and play live to 50 people then 100 people then 200 people and if you were great not good but if you were great then every one of those people told five other friends you have to go see Cardi in person. You have to go see him in concert. And that's essentially how it happened. Before the internet and before social media, they were kind of developing their own stories, earning fans one person at a time.
1: Amazing. Uh, And was he was was Cardinal back then in the day when things weren't at perhaps I don't make I don't want to make light of his work today because I'm sure it's not easy either. But when things weren't as easy and, you know, life was a little tougher, uh, was he still in the give back, you know, want to help the world mindset or is that coming more with uh, fame and fortune, so to speak?
2: No, he was always like that. Um, He was like that. Thanks to his mom, who who worked for for the for the city of Toronto and kind of instilling um, into him to be a good person. So he was always that wholesome. He was always that authentic. Um, but as he got popular, the the responsibility that was put upon him, he took with such gracefulness and such gratitude that um, a lot of artists would kind of shun away from that. You know, there's a lot of artists that that you and I have talked about in the past, that um, once they get really popular and really big, they kind of cower away from using their voice because they don't want to offend anybody. They don't want to cut their audience in half sometimes yeah, exactly. by saying exactly. the wrong thing yeah. or landing in the song in the wrong opinion. But Cardi knew that, um, you know, <laughs> I, I, I still do. If you're on the opposite side of Cardi, chances are you're on the wrong side of the issue. So he was choosing (laughs) issues that he could believe in and he can speak about. And a lot of it were just, it it, it doesn't devalue it, but they were no-brainer issues, like the importance of music in schools, the importance of parenting, and the importance of doing good in the world. Those three things you you can't argue with. So he, he took that responsibility and he just ran it.
1: You know, his music and his lyrics are really um in the world of hip hop are really quite positive and, and 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 uh uh somewhat uplifting compared to maybe others. Um does he lend does he lend his moral compass to his music or is there a separation between artist and human, so to speak? No, I, I think it would
2: be completely fine for people to to kinda check out his music. I mean, you know, even things and, and massive songs like dangerous that was the first song of his to crack into the Billboard Hot 100. It hit number five and sold 300,000 copies of that. Um, and from uh. then on in, he's kind of just put the spotlight on so many other artists, whether it was, you know, the Clash album that he did back in 2015. But there's so many other songs and albums like Bacardi Slang and Belly Dancer that um, that were were for mostly his audience of of adults, but he always knew that the kids were watching. He always knew that at the end of the day, the parents were the ones that allowed their kids to listen to his music. And it didn't make it wander down like the Wiggles, but it made it okay to put out a a rap and hip-hop album and not have a parental advisory sticker on it.
1: Yeah. And you know what, it's, what's interesting is, you know, along with this social justice award thing, uh, which is a big deal for sure. uh, You know, the whole, the whole concept of, I mean, as I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, this of hip hop music back in that, in that time, you know, I'm old enough to see a whole bunch of stuff (laughs) over my lifetime. And the fact that he's called as a judge in what is pretty much a vanilla safe Canadian, Mm -hmm. everyone sit together at home and watch with Coco kind of show um, says a lot, uh, I think, about him. Uh, maybe something about his music, but I think it says a lot about him because he then is a safe face for that alter- to what parents would see as some alternative type of music uh, in today. Not my words, someone else's. Um, yeah. So I think that's a, that's an award by itself, don't you think? Yeah, I, absolutely. You know, I, I mean, when you're talking about
2: television, there's always people that love to play. The role, even in reality shows, you've got the angry person, you've got, um, you know, the the one that you would love to hang out with and have a beer with. There's one that you know you can't bring home to your mother. Um, and so, when it came to Cardi though, he fits the niche of what that show was looking for. They wanted somebody with experience in the music industry, both as an artist and somebody that's also been on the business side of it, but also somebody that had the opportunity to empower young black women. He's been involved a lot with schools and communities and neighborhoods, specifically for girls and for women. He's done a lot of work with organizations and he's not afraid of, of going into um, into those places and and talking about doing good he makes doing good cool and he makes it worthwhile for it and you know his focus is super clear not only yeah. in life but also on that show
0: Most of what we're dealing with now and I oh you get a lot of blowback on on social media but these buyers in Ontario and Quebec they were, almost 100% caused by, at least the ones in Quebec, by, by lightning. And it all happened on June 1st. Uh, it smoldered for a day, and then the conditions were ideal yeah. for this to just blow up. So that that's kind of the starting of that fire others humans have been causing fires for a long time and then that's not going to change unfortunately
1: so you know i was sitting around and thinking about it the other day about the heat and the smoke and everything that we're experiencing here in ontario i live in uh, the northern part of toronto here part of uh, in ontario uh, but my friends and and, and all, all of you know many of you that are out in the west uh, part of the country east part of the country are all experiencing you know issues with these wildfires and the smoke that that's caused by them. And, and, and you know what, maybe not just the visible stuff, right? Maybe we should talk a little bit, if you're open to it, I'd like you to join me here as we talk about sort of, you know, how to handle some of the stress around it, because you got to kind of, I don't know, maybe reframe the whole thing. You know, if you're in the middle of it and you can see it smell it and touch it close enough to where you are, you're probably not in the right place right now. Number one. Number two, you know, listening to the media, following the disaster info, if you will, on the day-by-day, minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour basis, if you're feeling pressured by it all in some fashion, probably not a great idea. I know I'm a broadcaster. I shouldn't be saying that, right? But seriously, a little too much radio, a little too much TV, reading a few too many articles about it, a little too many chat chat rooms online about you know these fires and the disaster yeah, we all know it's a disastrous situation but like other situations in our lives for most of us, we've had had and experienced other disasters not to lighten these at all this at all but somehow the stuff you think you never get over you somehow get over. Somehow man, don't you you somehow just get over to the other side and when you do, you feel sort of accomplished. Certainly I do. You know, experiencing situations for me, like uh, things related to, to uh, uh, my comfort, you know, as much as I don't want to sound like a, you know, like a, a spoiled little prince. There's things related to my comfort because I've got leg issues and back issues and, you know, sleeping issues. Like I got all kinds of issues. So the, the comfort for me to take me out of my home into another situation, hotel, somebody else's house, which I never do, by the way, uh, hotel or, you know, resort something with my wife, my kids, my family. Um, and, you know, for me to do that, it's work as much as it sounds, well, you know, you're going to a hotel and wow, well, I'd love to do that too. I know, man, I know, I know you would. And you'd love to get on an airplane and travel 12 hours and, and get to some beautiful place in Europe and have a great time. That to me is enough to make me want to throw up the thought of 12 hours on an airplane and then getting to a country where maybe they don't speak English and maybe my scooter doesn't go on the cobblestone streets, that kind of stuff definitely makes me uncomfortable. So we all have our thing, right? We all have our thing. So when it comes to fires and smoke and worldly disasters, we could also ask our que- ourselves the question, like I did last week on the show, you know, are we doing something wrong in terms of how we treat one another? Maybe if we treat each other a little bit better, we might see a few less disasters, fewer disasters in the world out there. I don't know. But listen, if you're to manage your distress, you need to take a break right? You need to take a break from whatever input you're getting this stuff from and just kind of chill a little bit and let it kind of, you know, take it in for what it's worth. Let it let it kind of pass. And it, for the most part, put yourself in a position where you can protect you and your loved ones, your neighbors if you can, but for sure you and your loved ones. You know, be kind to yourself. You know, when you're witnessing Horrible situations, living in horrible situations, whether, you know, you're living in a a war-torn country like uh, our friends in the Ukraine today or our friends in Russia that don't want to be a part of all this. uh, They're on the other side of this and not thrilled about it either. You know, when you you witness a lot of disaster, you witness, you know, I see this with patients and, and people I deal with that are first responders, firefighters, right? Uh, You know, first-line police officers, um, emergency, um, you know, responders, uh, EMS, uh, ambulance people, and so on. And believe it or not, here's an interesting thought, just as an aside. It's traffic cops deal with more PTSD and trauma than homicide cops do, just as an example. So, you know, whatever you're doing, we all kind of tend to deal with disaster in different ways. Some of us get numb, right? back in the day i've got some policing friends that say back in the day 30 40 years ago then they, they were you know when they were in the, in the in the midst of their careers you know and they saw something horrible on the job you know their sergeant would say you know go get yourself a mickey of uh, canada club or, or whatever not canada club or canada whatever uh whatever canada whatever the the make of whiskey was in those days i don't have it off the top of my head I'm not a whiskey drinker uh, but you know, go get yourself a Mickey or something hard, and uh, drink it up, and get a good night's sleep, and we'll see you back at the precinct in the morning. Well, it, it doesn't work like that for for people. It, it doesn't work like that. So you need to keep the disaster in perspective, right? If it's not touching you, close to you, right where you live, then you don't have to, you know, disaster. You'll know, turn this into a disaster that's in your front lawn if it's not. So reframing your thinking. And staying in the moment. The moment is where I am right now, who I'm with right now, what's the risk of anything happening to me that's not good, what's my safety factor, what's the safety factor of my loved ones and those that I care about. Taking an inventory in real time. Listen to me, man. Take an inventory in real time about where you are and what's going on. Not what you see on TV that's 100 kilometers away or, you know, not what you see on TV that's thousands of kilometers away. Yeah, it's nice to be empathetic. It's nice to feel for other people. It's nice to be there for them, but not at your expense, not at the cost of your well-being and your mental health. Keep it in perspective. Listen to me, man. Keep it in perspective. It's so important that you don't catastrophize something that hasn't happened. And maybe the likelihood of it happening is not so great, but what if this, and what if that? You know, people that I treat that deal with high levels of, of anxiety um, are, are caught in this, you know, this catastrophizing mindset a lot of the time. I, I, I do it myself, I have anxiety disorder. One of the things is, you know, if I go there, this might happen, this might, so I, re- I work really hard on saying no. Last time we did this, it wasn't so bad. Last time we did it, we actually had a good time. Where we, you know, we did this instead or that instead and you'll be just fine. I talk myself into it. It's called positive self-talk. Next thing to learn. Positive self-talk. I'm going to be okay. I got this. I've taken care of what I need to take care of. I've protected myself and my family. I've put my valuables where they belong. I, I I know where my, you know, where I need to, if I need to leave, I know how long I have till I leave. If I don't need to leave, I know what I need to do to keep myself safe. And I feel bad for everybody out there. So I'm going to go donate $25 to some fire relief fund. You can do stuff rather than sit in the disaster itself. Donating time if you can, donating money if you can. Donating, you know, energy by participating in some volunteer role, right? Maybe that's the same as donating time. Either way. In some way, become active. And then when the disaster is over, maybe join an organization in your community that's all about volunteerism around disaster relief. You know, one of the ways we feel better about situations we're in that we don't like is to advocate, fight back, be a part of it, make a difference, try to do something so we don't just have to take it and sit in it. You know, the Ukrainian people, as much as they're in a disastrous situation, a horrific situation day and night, are sitting in a situation where they are so driven by not giving up. They are so focused on not giving up that that's what drives them every day through the disaster. They're focused on the, on, on the relief. They're focused on, on knowing that they're not sitting there just taking it. They're not letting the bully, you know, steal their lunch anymore. They're making sure that they're there to stand up for themselves, even if it means a bloody nose. Sometimes physically or emotionally, we have to end up with a bloody nose to stand up for ourselves. I'm not suggesting you go and get into a fight. Don't get me wrong, okay? But when you're in a situation like in, 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 with wildfires or other forms of natural disasters and you know they're out of your direct control, there are ways you can help. But you also have to bear in mind that you are not going to influence a tidal wave somewhere in the Atlantic. You're not going to influence a wildfire, you know, 2,000 miles away from you, 1,000 miles away from you, that, you know, your help and support is, is not going to make much of a difference. Stay in the moment. Do a gratitude list. Be appreciative for what you have. Stay safe, and uh, I'm sure you're going to feel better coming out the other side. talked a little bit about the, uh, if you're listening in the first hour, we talked uh, before break here about wildfires and managing stress and and, and your concern around disaster things uh, or disaster and things related to how you feel in um, situations where you feel you may be in peril or you're, you know, watching someone else in peril. Um, we lately talked about how it impacts uh, first responders, police officers, and those kinds of people. And But we all tend to have uh, sides of us that are a little bit more anxious, right? A little bit more concerned about what ha- m- might happen. The what if stuff, right? That's what kills us in the end. It's the what if stuff. What if this happens? What if that happens? So t- looking at that is, you know, is, is, is managing that anxiety is uh, something we looked at uh, earlier on a few months back. And now we're, talking um, last few weeks about managing your depression managing the the other side of the coin so um, thinking about things that happened yesterday thinking about things that uh, you know that you did wrong or that were you were wronged in some way uh, guilt uh, remorse resentment all that stuff um, those are all those all kind of create depressive thinking right like negative thinking about the past and then of course there's the anxious thinking about the future so the best solution is, Roll the drum. The solution is mindfulness. 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 Living in the moment. Being the best you can in that moment. So let's talk a little bit more about ways to manage uh, your depression or, or boost your mood. Is maybe a better way to look at it. So fatigue. If you're if your your fatigue will improve if you stick with it, right? So starting to exercise can be difficult if you're if you're depressed and feeling a bit exhausted emotionally, which then makes you feel exhausted physically. But research shows that energy levels will improve if you stick with it. If you push yourself to walk a little bit, brisk, you know, a little brisker walk than, than normal, walk a little longer each day than normal, get on your bike, uh, do some push-ups, some sit-ups, a little yoga, some stretching, anything. Start by doing anything that feels like it's physical fitness or exercise. So fitness, sleep, nutrition, Three cornerstones to good mental and physical health always will be, always has been. So we know that your levels will improve if you stick with it. So today I'll be, you know, I don't know if you've ever, uh, sure you have, right? We, We all have, you know, decided we wanted to jog. I remember years back I decided I wanted to jog. Now, you know, years ago, lots of years ago, when I was a prize fighter, we did a lot of road work, a lot of running and construction boots along railway tracks and cement and and, and that kind of stuff destroyed my lower back and my hips. But, you know, that's what we did. That was part of the routine. So some form of fitness, you know, so I decided maybe. Maybe I could jog again. Anyway, I worked up to it for a week. Tried a little, a little. I hated it. Didn't stick with it. Decided to ride a bike indoors instead. Uh, So I got one of those bikes and let me ride around the world on the screen and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, my point is exercise is critical and you got to stick with it. So when I used to jog, I jog a little bit and then I thought I was going to pass out. Then I Next day, jog a little bit more. thought I was going to pass out. And then before you know it, I made it all the way around the block. Wasn't a very big block, I promise you sticking with it, doing what you need to do. Find exercises that are continuous and rhythmic. Also a really good way to keep yourself in uh, a good state of, of, of mind, right? Make sure that it's rhythmic. So next thing we need to do is think about things that go with the outside exercise, right? The mindfulness element is, you know, staying in the moment and all of that is very critical to it all as we know. But basically understanding the, the, comp- the components around um, about, you know, getting the best how to, way to improve your mood in physical ways, right? So we've talked about ways to, to improve your mood by spending time in nature, playing with a pet and all of that. We talked about connecting with others and going for a walk. And going for a walk, by the way, is in everybody's uh, list of how to improve mental health. In everybody's. So let's now look at things like getting some sunlight. Getting outside in some sunlight, whether you live in a place where there's lots of sunlight or you don't, there's still sunlight. Even through the clouds, you get some form of sunlight. So sunlight outdoors, outdoor weather, outdoor air, outdoors, 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 very helpful. So take a walk, for example, if you're on your lunch break. You know you work, you have a job. Most of us do. So take a take a take a walk on your lunch break. You know, sit and have your coffee or your whatever outside. Enjoy a meal that's maybe fresher than you might have had normally. So maybe tonight you pack some really, you know, good things for you that are tasty, but good. Make your own lunch. Mm, That's novel, right? I know it's cheaper to go to wherever one of these places for under 10 bucks. You can eat all the crap you want and come home with all kinds of greasy stuff in your belly and and a soft drink and call that a meal. I get it. But I bet you for the same 10 bucks you can have a wicked homemade lunch couple of pieces of bread, something in between, a handful of something green like salad. You buy this stuff now called baggo salad, or you can make your own, you know, cut up a bunch of different kinds of lettuce and stuff and make a salad, put it in a bag. Don't put any dressing on it and then have it whenever you want. Eat a little bit better. Helps a lot with your mental health. Double up on the benefits of sunlight by, by, you know, making sure that you're, you're, you're spending time as much as possible outside. If you can work outdoors and the weather is nice, Awesome, that's really awesome to be able to enjoy your outdoors and get your job done as well. I have a little bit of a space where I live, where a little outdoor space where I could sit with a good, a good connection, a good Wi-Fi connection, and and do some some video work or do some phone work. Um, you know, I wouldn't broadcast from it because connection is not great, but good enough to you know talk to some people and, and and get some stuff done, or just good enough to sit outside and you know contemplate the things I need to do that are more creative. So getting outside a big part of handling your depression and, and, you know, you might find, I'm hoping you're going to find that if you're feeling a little down and depressed, let's say in February, March, uh, you know, lots of snow. And now we're, we're in June, the sun is coming out. The days are starting to get warmer and longer and all that should improve your mood just a little bit and living and staying at home with the drapes pulled and the blinds down under the covers because you're so depressed. You don't want to see anybody. You're not going to ever feel better. I wish I could. I wish he could tell you that it would help, honestly, but it doesn't. It doesn't. So you need to get out and enjoy the weather. You need to make sure that you spend some time um, out in nature, um, enjoying the weather, dress accordingly, you know, make an excuse. I find that pets are a great excuse for people. Uh, I can tell you how many people that I've known over the years that were, you know, unfortunately very sick. Uh, With terminal illnesses and all kinds of horrible treatments, but they had a cat or a dog or whatever. In most cases, obviously, a dog. You don't really walk a cat, although I saw it. It was kind of cool. But, you know, they get up to walk their dog a couple times a day, even if they feel like they're going to throw up all the way through it or they can't, the pain is so great it's hard to stand up. But they force themselves for the sake of the dog. It extends your life. Having someone to fuss over, something to fuss over, something or someone to be responsible for in some way, including yourself, extends your life. So it's all about how you think about it. It's all about how you think about your current state of mind. If you're feeling blue and uncomfortable and you don't feel like you want the world to see you, that's okay. You can go out and privately go do what you have to do. You can go for a drive. You can go for a walk. You can you know, take a bus ride from one end of the city to the other just to look at, at your city from the perspective of a seat on a bus and quietly sit there and mind your own business. You don't have to interact with people. Like, I get that. I get that that's not something that everyone wants to do. I, I, you know, it makes sense to me. But at the end of the day, staying at home all by yourself, the chances of ever feeling better are pretty slim. And, you know, if you can, find someone to talk to. Someone you trust, someone that's going to help you, someone that can give you advice, someone whose advice you respect, right? That's a a big part of getting help is making sure you're getting help from somebody whose advice you actually will listen to because you respect who they are. Huge part of it. So hopefully you're not so blue today and tomorrow's going to be a, a better day because you're going to make it a great day. Just do the things you need to do. Get some rest, get some exercise, make sure you're eating properly, talk to a friend, and do that kind of stuff.
3: I lost my only son, Jordan, at age 25 to complications of an opioid addiction. Fentanyl is killing across the board. It is killing people who are seasoned addicts. It is killing people who are, are recreational users. If I knew then what I know now, I believe he would be alive. He would have had a chance.
1: There you have it. That's uh, Leslie, my guest. She'll be with us here in just a minute. Uh, Leslie McBain. uh, That's her. She lays out, that she lost her son to overdose on opioids uh, like so many uh, and doesn't mince her words. She states that fentanyl is killing people right across the country. And you know what? She's a thousand percent right. So why are we looking at things like putting opioids in vending machines? Well, um, and there's a concern that kids are accessing it. So let me get you to that in a minute before Leslie joins us and then uh, we'll carry on uh, with our conversation. But there, so there's a vending machine in Vancouver. I've talked to some of the folks that have put it together in, in previous shows. Uh, they're called my safe machines. Uh, they dispense hydromorphone. Uh, you need a prescription to get them. It's medical, medical grade opioid helps people from getting sick. Hopefully then they won't be looking for illicit drugs, which means then they won't be getting fentanyl mixed with whatever they think they're doing. Because let me tell you, my friend, there. are There isn't any real uh, heroin, uh, cocaine, or anything out there that isn't touched, mixed with, or somehow somehow, um, polluted by some form of, of, of fentanyl, even if it's just on the cutting board or on the scale. Anyway, these machines are designed to help save lives. And for the most part, they do a very good job. Here's the issue. The issue is that can kids access them? Well, they're not accessing them by breaking into the machines, that much I can tell you. We've talked to the experts and the doctor that designed it, and we know that, but Can an older kid who's or someone who's got a prescription, you know, take the prescription, get the free um, um, uh, hydromorph or whatever out of the out of the dispensary and then give it to a kid? Sure, they can just same as we, you know, when we were kids and we wanted cigarettes, we'd find the older kids in the neighborhood. Hey, man, come on. Like, we'll give you an extra 10 bucks. Can you buy us our cigarettes? And then the five of us would get together would steal two dollars each from our mothers and buy smokes, which, by the way. Leslie's going to agree with me, is the gateway drug because that's where you learn how to lie, steal, and cheat. Leslie uh, McBain, she is the co-founder of Moms Stop the Harm, lost her kid to uh, an overdose in 2014, isn't happy about anything to do with vending machines or, frankly, how the government's handling this whole opioid crisis. Leslie, welcome to the show tonight, and uh, so much appreciate you being here. Oh, Thank you for inviting me. So um, tell us. I don't need to hear the 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 stories. So, we're, I, I'd like to posture this as you being at your best, as opposed to the government and others being at their worst. So, um, in in the in the in the midst of in the in the, in the aftermath of a horrible loss, and, and all of us, our hearts go out to you. A horrible loss. You stand up. You begin to fight. You put on the cape, so to speak, and start mum. Start mum. Stop the harm. Tell me how that came about. What were you thinking, and what made it work for you?
0: Well, I think really the um, the death of my son was completely preventable. And the reason that he died was he had an addiction and he was not given or the services that he needed were not available. So he, he took it upon himself to, you know, doctor shop and, and go to walk-in clinics and, and get the, you know, and I use the word medicine because people who are who are addicted or dependent on opioids or other drugs uh, need that to not get sick. So anyway, he got a, a combination of drugs uh, that actually stopped his heart one day. After that, um, we I met two other women who had similarly lost their sons to drug harm. and we were angry. We were in grief. We decided that we needed to start advocating for better drug policy to protect you know, the sons and daughters and loved ones of other people. So that, you know, we did that in, a, uh, we really got started about 2016.
1: Okay. And did you find that by doing so it helped you heal or did it just help you vent with the, you know, handle the anger, so to speak?
0: Well, we, um, they're, they're probably, it's hard to say Did it help me heal. I, I'll never heal. None of us were, will ever heal who have lost our children. However, mm-hmm. Um, it propelled us and, and, and many others to look at what's wrong with why is this happening? Why are our loved ones dying of a toxic drug supply? Um, what is going on here? Let's look into it. So, you know, we educated ourselves. We got ourselves on, on uh, provincial and federal committees to try and understand. And we, we you know, we try and uh, bring that uh, education that we received and the way we handle our grief to others. Um, so I guess it is healing in a way, but it's also just sometimes you're propelled to do what you're supposed to do in life. You, you know, this door opens and you go through.
1: Okay, so unfair question, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. I give you, I, so I, I come to you and I say, okay, Leslie, we've got, uh, you know, $10 million, and you've got the key. How are you going to stop the opioid crisis in Canada? What would you do? You ever think about it?
0: Well, if you gave me half a billion dollars, I might be able to do something about it. Um, Really, the problem is the toxic drug supply at the moment. It is killing people 21 or two a day in Canada, and people are dying from that. So I would put all that money, any money, uh, I would put it into uh, looking at and implementing in the many pathways there is, a, a safe supply of drugs for people who, who need them. And actually, I would like to correct one thing you said uh, earlier. You said that I'm upset about the MySafe machines. I am not upset about those. Those, are, those machines are actually a really good pathway for people to access safe supply. The diversion that happens happens everywhere, all the time for years and so if there is some diversion um, you know the way we look at it is that diversion at least the person who's getting it is getting a safe supply rather than getting it on the street.
1: My understanding was that you had some concern about kids accessing that that, that drug supply is that did I misunderstand the information for my press folks?
0: Um, I would always have concerns about kids, or youth accessing drugs. I mean, there's no question about it. Uh, They're going to do it anyway. Um, But, (laughs) you know, and I prefer they had education around uh, drug use and that they didn't Mm. need to. Mm. But, you know, as a a young person myself, you know, I I did drugs. I had to try everything. Um, And maybe a lot of that drug use is experimentation. Of course, I'm concerned about youth, but I am not concerned about the the MySafe machines in and of themselves. What a person does with the drugs they get is is another. You know, we can't control that.
3: I think all parents need to know that in every single high school in this country, there are there is the potential for um, obtaining drugs. Uh, and if a parent is judgmental, if a parent is um, angry the child will close down. It's just the way it is. That's that's life. Uh, so the conversation has to be a calm and measured conversation with facts and no blame, no shame, no, no stigmatizing, no threats. It has to be the straight talk on what can happen.
1: So you've just heard Leslie McBain, our guest again. Uh, she gives some sound but blunt advice to parents uh, and, uh high schools about the potential and the har to harbor drugs that children can get their hands on to be careful uh, how they handle drugs and so on uh, so appreciate having her with us here tonight. she's uh, joining us um, on the show Leslie thanks for sticking with us and uh, being with us tonight um you know the the message that we heard on the clip. Uh, talks a little bit to parents about, you know, things that, you know, you think they could be doing uh, better to uh, leave us in a position to, um, uh, you know, to to maybe save our children, so to speak, right? Um, but, you know, the policy that's out there, the stuff, you know, you, you seem to have from the stuff I read, a little bit of research I was able to do about you, Leslie, um, you have opinions about government, and things that you think they should be doing. Um, can you, Try to share that with us in as non-political a way as possible. <laughs> it's hard to talk
0: about government and be non-political. <laughs> however, however, um, I I often say this, and I truly believe it is. It's actually drug policy that is killing people. I mean, we can say that it's toxic drugs, and it is. But why are the toxic drugs still out there? Why are people who are dependent or addicted? Uh, still having to access a black market supply, which is organized crime business, by the way. Um, so our governments are saying, well, no, we, we just don't feel like safe supply is an answer, yet they're willing, it is willing to let people go out into that black market, access those toxic drugs, and, and often die. So that doesn't make any sense. Mums Stop the Harm is primarily interested... In stopping the death that's our first order of business because most of us have lost kids so we want to stop the death how do we do that well as you suggest there's multiple levels starting at home starting in the school starting with education and then to find kids who are at risk and so on but uh, first of all we don't want people to die
1: yeah, that's uh, you know, it's people are going to do drugs. There's no doubt about it. Kids are going to do drugs. There's no doubt about it. Um, you've you've in your conversations with government, how do they how do they respond to you and your and your crew?
0: Interestingly, um, I'm on several government committees. I was just on a meeting this morning about uh, about decriminalization. Government moves. At a glacial pace, as you know, every single small decision, especially around these emotional issues, is very, very slow. And I always say in committee, I say, while we are talking about this issue, someone is dying right now. Someone is dying because they can't access safe supply. What does government say? Government says, and, and this is just the, I don't mean to be glib, but they always say we're working on it. We're working on it, and, and they are working on it. They understand. They see the research. They see all the evidence uh, that safe supply, a safer supply delivered in the several pathways that can be delivered is the way to stop the death. But it's such a, a political hot potato that <clears throat> not much progress has been made over the last seven years.
1: It's, it's amazing, though, how quickly government gets together when they're dealing with something like the pandemic, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's it was kind of a miracle. I mean, there was flaws, but, you know, governments on all levels dealt with it quickly and uh, fairly efficiently and, you know, a, a turnaround that we couldn't have imagined.
1: You know, people have said to me. People have said to me, Yona. You know, unfortunately, it's going to take something like, God forbid, somebody in the premier's family, or someone in the prime minister's family, or someone in, you know, some government official, or some billionaire's family who, who's, you know, who's suffering um, from this um, horrible situation where they have, you know, particular uh, need to have access to drugs and they can't find safe ones. So, Matt, you know, um. Is that true? You really think they have to get hit in the forehead to pay attention?
0: No, I don't think they do. <clears throat> it, it it certainly, I almost said it certainly helps, but it when, when someone has been touched, their heart has been touched by losing a loved one or seeing a loved one struggle, then they do start to understand what we're up against here. And that's, um, you know, I've met politicians, many politicians, whose lives have been touched by it, and who actually agree with say, a safer supply and all the harm reduction measures. Like the, the government likes to talk about uh, about how much money and what they're doing, all all the uh, things they're doing around uh, treatment and recovery, and that is absolutely necessary. I mean, there's no nobody would question that we need that. But then when it gets to saving lives from toxic drugs, like there's a big gap there. As we always say, dead people can't use those facilities. So we need to start at, at square one. How do we save the lives of people who use drugs today? Now, in terms of education and kids and parents and all of that, that starts way before today when they're using drugs and dying. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I. I uh, it's amazing though that um, that it, it, it's such a political subject, and we can't move faster than we're moving. And you know, I, I got to believe that there's 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 an option here at the end of the day of some sort. You know, you talk about you know the money being spent for recovery and treatment. I don't know where you live, but where I live, I don't see a whole lot more treatment beds available. It's still a lineup of three to six months to get to a psychiatrist. And to get any kind of drug or alcohol recovery is almost impossible unless you can pay for it. What's it, What's going on where you are?
0: Well, I'm in D.C., and it's the same. Um, it's the same. I mean, it's every time they, uh, the government, whatever level, talks about it, it is sort of aspirational, you know, we're going to do this. We have this money and we're going to do this. And, and even if, um, you know, let's say they said today, whichever level of government, we are going to build 800 new beds. Okay. Well, that's, that's good. That's a good thing. How long will that take? Will that take three years? Yeah. Let's multiply three, three years times, uh, seven deaths a day in BC or 21 in Canada that's a lot of dead people. So, you know, it's just, it is slow and it's so frustrating to us to see, to see the, yeah, the, the, how slow it is. Any kind of
1: in toronto i drove by uh, sunnybrook hospital which is a very well-known hospital in ontario maybe in canada and they had outfitted a big part of the parking lot with tents and like cool tents like army set-up tents you know with uh, air conditioning and airflow and and they were doing triage and 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 uh, care uh, care work uh, you know frontline work with people that had uh, with had the pandemic people mm-hmm. who had COVID 19 and it didn't take them but a couple two three days to erect enough space i think to 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 house 150 people or something like that it, it doesn't take that long and it doesn't cost as much as they're planning to spend over the three years what's stopping them yeah what is stopping them that's a good question there
0: are so many <clears throat> excuse me there are so many solutions here to certain problems that um that could you know things like you say could be implemented without too much cost and and simply uh to to treat people or to at least get people to where they need to go, um, you know, it, it's amazing that it's not being done, given that you know, we have a population of people who are, who are needing this badly. Uh, the, other, the other thing to consider, too, is that a lot of people who, most people who are using illicit drugs are not people who would access those services. They are people who, men especially. Yeah. I think it's about in the seventy percentile, yeah. men yeah. who are housed, who are employed, and who are using street drugs. Um, yeah. They don't want to out themselves, so that system yeah. doesn't work for seventy percent of the population. It. Um, so what do we do? What, what you know? How do we? What's, what's the solution day? exactly?
1: Have a listen to uh, we, what we talked about here as it relates to being tribal. If you feel like you're part of a organization or not, and you know how does that make you feel? Do you like to be part of a club or not part of a club? I guess it depends on what kind of club it is. And I think that's just, in essence, what uh, this next segment is about. So uh, have a listen. Tell me what you think and uh, uh, see how it helps you fit into your little group. Most people feel better belonging to something, right? So it's called tribalism, actually. And it's been a part of human societies for thousands and thousands of years. It's an influence. Uh, it's influence, I should say, can easily be seen in the way we live. Tribalism is strong loyalty to a particular group or you have a tendency to be, you know, to favor a member or members of a particular group. Um, and tribalism has positive effects. It can promote strong bonds between members of the same group, but it also can lead to negative outcomes, including conflict and Discrimination, prejudice, you know, cliquey people, right? They're part of a group, but there's cliquey people on one side or the other. So the positive aspects of tribalism include the development of strong. Uh, social relationships between members of the same group. So for example, you know, we talk to people that are in recovery all the time um, in one form or another, and we talk about, you know, how do you make friends with a new group of people that in this particular case, as an example, uh, are sober or are no longer doing drugs or are no longer, you know, uh, gambling or whatever, right? Joining, joining up with like-minded thinkers, So there's a benefit to us living in a society where we have a choice to organize our behavior and our social time with like-minded thinkers. But it also has negative consequences, right? So one of the main problems associated with it is that it can lead to conflict between different groups. So the more segmented you become, the more impactful your opinion is, right? So if you're if you're representing a you know you're representing the A group and you have a belief in one thing and your friends are representing the B group and they have a belief in something else, the likelihood is that you and your friend at some point, um, because of the groups you belong to, the tribes you are a part of, um, may take a different stand and that can lead to argument, disagreement, and so on. And we see a ton of that, by the way. We see a ton of that in the way organized religion uh, leads to uh, the horrible wars and such that we see in the world. So it, tribalism can have both positive and negative effects. But, it, you know, in order to, hand, to, to, to handle it properly, you need to understand what you're signing up for. That's a big part of it, right? What am I signing up for? So if you're joining a club that enjoys, you know, looking at flowers and walking through nature, and it's part of an organization that, you know, gives back to the community or whatever, and, these, and, and you like this kind of, of philosophy, then chances are it's a good thing for you to be part of that group. But if you join a group and you decide that you want to join this group because it's the group to belong to, right? So kids have a hard time making these, this distinction in schools. They tend to want to hang out with the cool kids that everyone pays attention to versus the kids that aren't as cool and don't stand out as much. And you know, as a result, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Lots of times it doesn't. Depends on the kid. If the kid is made of the same stuff, then it fits. If the kid isn't, then it really doesn't. Can you join an organization and change your thinking along the way? Absolutely. We see it in religious context all the time. You know, Buddhist people become Jewish people. Jewish people become Buddhist people. Christians become Muslims. Muslims become Christians and and so on. And in all different faiths, people, you know, join other faiths looking for whatever they're looking for. So we know that we can change organizations. We can change the groups that we belong to. Um, based on our passion and our desire—that's really the kind of the idea. You want to be part of something where there's a passion and desire. So the human drive, that the tribal drive, um, is really a tendency to belong. Um, for a lot of people, to belong to a group, or in some cases, belong to the groups that don't want to belong to a group, because they're out there too, right? There's an organization of people that don't want to be part of an organization, <laughs> in some fashion or another. In the United States, there's, an, there's a political organization called Libertarians, and Libertarians are an interesting group of people because they don't believe in organized, um, to the best of my knowledge, organized politics and you know um, policing and all that stuff. Yet, you know, they're pretty organized for an unorganized group of people or a disorganized group of people who don't want to be part of a, a, a of a of a an entity. Well, a lot of us do. A lot of us want to belong to this kind of stuff. It goes back, you know, 300,000 years ago, maybe even more, when modern humans were emerging, right? So that means, you know, is it a a human thing only? Uh, You know, probably not. If you look at the way animals are in nature, they also look to connect in in a tribal fashion, in packs, right? Animals travel in packs, a lot of them do, In, in, in flocks, right? Various names for how animals travel in a group. It's you know it, it's very uncomfortable for most people, and I guess maybe for most animals, to be on the outside looking in, to be outside of the the world that is going on around you. People want to belong to something, and you know what? You can even try channel your tribal instincts even a little more pain, a little more playfully if you're trying to dip your feet in the water a little bit. If you're not so you know tribal you don't feel like you want to belong and and you know it's just try becoming a member of of some organization that you know you you like what they stand for so you know uh, looking after um, a- animals you know animals that are that are that need to be fostered or you know joining an organization that's all about a particular sports team that you support you know someone who is a fan of a particular sports team is absolutely a- is absolutely exercising their tribal their tribal desires and their need to be part of something. Well, this metal, this thing sort of works, right? It works as well when you're coming up with some secret sauce to grow your business, to produce the best website, for example, possible. So you want to understand what this, what, what the how to create a tribal mentality around your business. People want to belong. So creating content is what they call it, right? Creating content. So that you're able to engage with people that are interested in your message, and for that to become somewhat viral is another term, meaning that spreads out amongst all kinds of people. They're getting the word spread out. It's like imagine if you know in the old days someone rode up and down the street yelling and screaming the name of your business. Hopefully, that would be in the old days. It would create to you know create a, a, a you know a, a large number of people coming to be a part of whatever it is you got going on. So mentality is very important in the human tendency to seek and connect with like-minded thinkers. It's very important. Um, and, and groups of people who are connected to one another, to a leader, to an idea, um, you know, it's not necessarily, uh, it can be to a, it can be to a person. you you know, you all believe in such and such a person. Um, and it's very important for a business owner, because if you understand the tribal mentality around your brand and product, The chances of increased sales, especially word of mouth, marketing and reviews and such is much greater and increased retention. Your customers feel like they belong. So they're going to stick around more engagement, better engagement. They leave comments and they discuss that's where the whole idea of reviews, you know, that whole Google review thing or something review thing. Uh, re- reviews are part of a group right part of an of a of a tribe, so to speak, better content ideas and so on it's It's good to be thinking in tribal in a tribal sense when you're looking at, at at marketing to audiences where you want them to come together and be a part of a movement, so to speak, right part of something that um, that makes a difference in the world and and perhaps you know even if it's just for a business, it's you know the purposes of of of, of capital gain. Uh, you really want people. To be talking about what you do and how you do it, right, and um, and how great an opportunity it is to do it with you, and how good an experience is, and so on. You want people to share in the message, so that can be somewhat tribal as well. Wow, man, what a night! I hope uh, you enjoyed yourself as much as I do. Listen, I love you. You're the best audience ever. Uh, I want you to make it a great week. Take care of one another. Be kind to each other. If there's someone in your life that's special, let them know. Give someone a hug, a kiss, hold a hand. A slight hand on the shoulder, letting someone know that you care enough about them. Of course, wanted touches, not unwanted touches. And we got so much more stuff to do next week. So I really want you to work hard at being at your best. Make it the best week ever. And next week, we'll do some more.